Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 10th chapter of Acts, starting in verse 34 through verse 43. Hear now God's Word. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The Word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That Word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. This is the ninth and last sermon in the series titled, Cheated Through Philosophy. The Bible warns us about this real danger, and it is repeatedly emphasized because false teaching is a genuine threat to the church and to God's people and to you and me. The first three sermons dealt with three texts, and I want to remind you what those were. This is what we set the table with. In Colossians 2, we read now, This I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Then in Ephesians 4, we are told that it is central to the mission of the church to equip the saints so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And then in the third sermon, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul exhorts, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so the Bible gives us multiple warnings and warrant for the church to then address these false ideas, these things that threaten God's people, threaten to undermine the work of the church. And so I've used but a few examples of the false philosophies that surround us, but there are uh, endless ideas that lead to the broad way and to destruction. But there is only one person. There is only one philosophy that is the way, the truth, and the life. And that, of course, is found in the Word of God and in the person 
of Jesus Christ. If he is who he says he is, then his word and his way are exclusive and they are essential. The philosophies of men come and go. They're constantly changing. I heard it once put this way, philosophy offers ever-changing answers to never-changing questions. Given the magnitude and longevity of the problems of humanity and the number of philosophies that have been proposed, do you think it is likely that natural or human solutions, even scientific ones, are just around the corner? The Christian gospel or the Christian philosophy, the Christian way of thinking about this world uh, is that the solution or remedy will require a supernatural remedy. There will not be a natural remedy. And that remedy has been supplied in the unexpected story of and the person of Jesus Christ who is the second person of the Trinity and is the Son of God. Therefore, the Christian gospel is an all-or-nothing proposition. As the Apostle Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. In other words, if Christianity, Christianity isn't true, then you're wasting your time and you're missing out on all the good parties. I assure you that there are many unbelievers who not only pity you, they think you're a dupe. That is, that you are a victim of deception. Some go so far as to say that the things you're teaching your children are a form of child abuse. In their view, since science can't find God, they've searched the world over, therefore He doesn't exist. The Bible describes this situation as one where sinners are motivated, and I'll call your attention to, remember we've addressed Darwin, Freud, and Marx, and, and as a result of this situation, these sinners are motivated to get rid of God out of the cosmos, the Creator, and the Judge. We need to get Him out of the way. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they're holding it down. Uh, the, the illustration of a big spring that is constantly pressing upon them, but they are continually suppressing this truth. Uh, another illustration I remember uh, Dr. Bonson used was uh, kids playing volleyball in a swimming pool and somebody, the ball comes, and they push the ball underneath the water uh, and kind of sit on it, hiding it, and acting like, nobody, where'd the ball go? Where'd the ball go? But the whole time, they're in contact with it. You see, you can't escape God. You can't escape His world. You can't escape the fact that you're made in His image. But it becomes a full-time job for unbelievers who, who really, according to what Romans 1 says, aren't they do believe. They know. They are without excuse. God has made it evident to them, but they suppress that truth, and it's an ethical issue. It's in unrighteousness because that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Yeah, but he says he's an atheist. I know what he says, but I also know what God says. God says he has shown it to him. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an apologetic. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And remember, you are just a so-called advanced animal. That's what you are. So what's described in Romans 1 is God pulling the curtain back and saying, now let me show you what's really going on. Yeah, I know what they say, but here is the truth. Of course, if the gospel is true, then it is the best news ever, and it calls for our total commitment to bow and confess, as our text says, Jesus is Lord over all. In the Christian view, you, your friends, your loved ones, indeed, every person has infinite value. Physical death isn't the end, but rather the beginning of eternity. Now, what I'm about to say isn't intended to be rude, but rather to be direct and to the point. If the Christian message is not true, then walk away or run into the void into the emptiness, then you can devote your extremely brief and meaningless life to, say, social justice or animal rights or global warming or some other pseudo-noble cause, or perhaps you can just go fishing. But when you lay down in death, if Darwin was right, then you're done. It's over. Your molecules will now be dispensed back into the vast cosmos and you will very, very soon be forgotten forever. Everything you ever thought or felt or loved or did will vanish forever. All the alleged progress will eventually disintegrate and every ounce of your effort will have been for not or zero. Do you see the enormous contrast? Do you see the stark choice? Do you believe that you have the right to choose? Then choose. Pick a side. Don't pretend to be a follower of Christ when you have no intention of following Him anywhere. If you only believe the things Jesus said that you approve of, then the fact is that Jesus is following you, not the other way around. In John 6, when Jesus clearly laid out that he had come from heaven and that he was the bread of life and that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day, here was the response from the crowd that had gathered. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, 
whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus replied, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The group responded, uh, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then something very important happens. The temporary followers of Jesus thought that what Jesus said was too hard to understand. It was too much to swallow. And we read in verses 60 through 66, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend uh, where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, boy, that was the coup de grace for some. You mean I'm not in charge? You mean I don't get to make this call? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That was a bridge too far. Jesus told the truth, but he didn't spend time trying to get people to sign up by offering them easy terms. We don't see Jesus chasing after someone saying, wait, wait, let's, let's compromise. If you want Darwin or Freud or Marx or any of the other myriad of alternative philosophies, then follow them. But if you want to follow Jesus, then take up your cross and follow. Now, before discussing the Christian philosophy, which is simple and direct, or the, or the philosophy or the message, it's important for us to understand something about the failures of Christians. Since the beginning, there have been many counterfeit versions of Christianity. I once asked my mentor, Dr. Greg Bonson, uh, again, a well-known defender of the Christian faith, what is the strongest argument against Christianity? And his immediate reply was, Christians. Why are Christians so bad? Of course, the Bible answers that question as well. The Apostle Paul describes uh, some in the church as, quote, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So there are many who would bristle and be highly offended if you suggested that they might not be genuine Christians, they want some vague religion where we love everyone, which, of course, means that we approve of everyone, or at least that we approve of the ones that they think we should approve of. But the Bible says love does not rejoice in iniquity, and the Bible tells us what iniquity is and isn't. 
In fact, the Bible is uncompromising, and it, is, it authoritatively sets forth the truth about God, about man, about law, and about sin. God himself is true, though every man a liar. 2 Peter 3, 16-18, referring to the epistles of the Apostle Paul, says this, In all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So these are people with Bibles. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Another warning in Scripture about being taken captive by false doctrine. In other words, well-intentioned and ill-intentioned people distort and twist Scripture, misrepresenting what the Bible says as they attempt to justify their own actions. But the Bible itself judges and condemns such behavior not because God doesn't love us, but because He does. So it's illegitimate to attribute to the Bible that which the Bible condemns. For example, an arrogant and abusive husband that mistreats his wife on the grounds that he is, quote, the head of his house, is not in any way acting in accord with what the Bible actually teaches about husbands and wives. In fact, the Bible rebukes such twisting of Scripture. The Bible teaches men to love and respect women and children. Parts of the church have and do abuse the Word of God, but the Scriptures don't bend and they don't change. They're the first to rebuke such hypocrisy. Now, I want to very quickly make a summary comparison of the Christian message to our current social justice culture. We, this is kind of feeding off of what we did last week. And again, looking at these major false philosophies that are impacting our world so dramatically. I just want to do a very quick run-through of saying, I started this sermon talking about Jesus saying, this is a stark choice. You know, Pick this one or this one. You can't have a blend. You can't have both. It's one or the other. It's because they are antithetical to one another. They stand over against one another. So I want to deal with nine basic questions. This is going to be really quick. I'm going to ask the question, and then I'm going to say, this is the social justice view. This is the culmination of Darwin and Freud and Marx and all of their descendants who adapted their philosophies in a thousand different ways. But it's what we have now. So question one, what is ultimately real? The social justice Folks say the human mind defines what is ultimately real. We get to define ourselves. We are autonomous. The Christian view is from Genesis 1.1. The God of Genesis 1.1 defines ultimate reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Number two, who are we? Well, they say creatures who identify... Uh, uh, whose identity is wholly socially determined. We are products of our race, of our sex, of our gender identity. That's who we are. We're animals. We're machines. 
Christians say we are creations and image bearers of a good, holy, and loving God with inherent dignity and immeasurable worth. Number three, what is our fundamental problem as human beings? They say it's oppression. White, heteronormative males have established and maintained hegemonic power structures to oppress and subjugate women, people of color, and sexual minorities, LGBTQ+, and others. Christians say the problem is rebellion, sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our rebellion against God has resulted in a broken relationship with God himself and then between us and and the rest of our fellow man, uh, between man and creation as well. Number four, what is the solution to our problem? Well, social justice says revolution. Oppressed victims and their allies must unite to unmask and deconstruct and overthrow these oppressive power structures and systems and institutions. Our answer is the gospel. On the cross, God incarnate bore the punishment we deserve for sinful rebellion in order to show us a mercy that we could never deserve. His death on the cross and his resurrection opened the way for the reconciliation of all of our broken relationships. Number five, how can we be saved? Well, if you're the other things we've said, victims are morally innocent and they don't require salvation. Oppressors can never be fully pardoned, but partial salvation is available if they will confess their complicity in the oppression and support the revolution. Christians say, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is our primary moral duty? They say to stand in solidarity with the revolution to protect and defend the oppressed women and people of color and sexual minorities, etc. We say to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How do we know what's true? This is epistemology. What's our source of authority? Well, they say the notions of objective truth and reason and logic and evidence and argument are discredited tools that the oppressors employ to maintain their control. We gain knowledge of truth through victims who based on their lived experience of oppression, have greater insight than oppressors. This is referred to as standpoint epistemology. And what's true for you is not true for me anyway. Christian view, divine revelation, number one, God's written word. Number two, the law written in our hearts, our human conscience, and and God's revelation and creation. And then to this we apply our God-given capacity to reason and discuss and debate and to weigh the evidence in pursuit of the objective truth revealed by God. Who has ultimate authority? They say victims are the final authority. The claims of victims based on their subjective lived experience must be believed without question. 
we say God and his revealed word in Scripture is the ultimate and final authority. And number nine, is there a future final judgment? They say no. There is no God who will return to punish the wicked and reward the upright. Rather, injustice must be rooted out here and now by those with the power to do so. Now, where we get the where we get a must out of that, I don't know. We say, yes, Jesus will return and accomplish perfect justice. He will preserve all that is good and rid the world of all that is evil. Until then, he extends mercy and forgiveness to sinful people. Now, these philosophies or systems of thought cannot both be true. They are mutually exclusive. In fact, they are the antithesis of one another. You can't claim one and practice the other. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. If you leave him out, if you make him irrelevant, and you've just, then you've just exchanged the truth for a lie, and you have begun to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, I want to conclude today by coming back to our text, Acts 10. We see here the gospel being preached and the Holy Spirit is falling on the Gentiles, that is, the world. If the gospel is true, then how can we possibly keep it to ourselves? It's not a private matter. Peter is doing what Jesus had already said the disciples must do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to think about the tiny beginnings of the Christian faith in the first century. They were swimming upstream. You talk about an oppressed minority. This message of the gospel had already reached Rome, and from there it was a small cultural step to go to the rest of the world. Peter begins this section by declaring that God does not play favorites when it comes to the gospel. This is the good news for everyone, for every nation, for every race, for every group of people. If what's wrong with the world is sin, then God himself has supplied the remedy. The Jews wrongly hated the Gentiles and vice versa. You see, group animus is is as ancient as the world. We're all selfish and self-righteous. Even the virtue-signaling social justice warriors think that they are better than the deplorables. But our fundamental problem starts with God himself. Romans 8, 5 and 8 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The problem of racism and other bigotry is that we don't love our neighbors, which is a sin problem. It's a sin against God, and it's a sin against our neighbors. Injustice is sin. Bitterness is a sin. Revenge is a sin, 
And the solution is not to further identify into separate groups and to stoke the fires of division, but rather to find a way of reconciliation and peace. Peter was, we say in the text in Acts 10 here, quote, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. Are people going to laugh at that? Sure. Paul gave that message in Acts 17 in Athens. Some of them mocked. Some of them said, we'd like to hear more. And then there's this almost an under, this understated footnote in Acts 17 that says, and some believed, including one of the leaders at the Areopagus, one of the Areopagites believed. God is the one that does that work. They all heard the same message with their ears, but God used that message with some. And the message of Peter here in Acts 10 concludes with, quote, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Enemies become allies and become brothers. N.T. Wright comments on this text saying, so why did this message about the mission of Jesus to Israel have the effect it did on Cornelius and his family and friends. That's who's being spoken to here, uh, or has been spoken to in Acts. At one level, of course, because this message is itself powerful. When Paul talks in his letters about the gospel, he doesn't primarily mean the way you can get saved He means the message that says that Jesus, the crucified and risen one, is the Lord of the whole world. And he says that message itself carries its own power. It acts as a summons to all who hear it. Think about when Jesus spoke to Lazarus and he said, come forth. What was the mechanism there? the power of the word let there be light there was light and when the gospel message goes out god does the same thing some mocked of course nt wright says but others find themselves gripped changed from the inside out aware of a new presence and power inside of them so it was that day christians we are called to speak, and to show the gospel. That is, according to our text, to bear good fruit. We live in a hostile world, but what's new about that? If we're going to counter this culture, as Christians have done for centuries, then we're going to have to overcome the bad ideas with good ideas. We're going to have to speak up, and we're going to have to speak up boldly. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but onto a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's showing the gospel. 
And as we speak to the unjust world that is at war with itself, our message is clear and simple as they did in Acts 10. We preach peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He really is the anointed Messiah who rose from the dead. And that trumps every other argument. Let me read again from Acts 10, starting in verse 38. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did, Jesus, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Again, N.T. Wright paraphrased Peter saying, Cornelius, the God whom you have worshipped from afar has done all of this. As part of his global plan to set everything right at last and at every stage, Jesus is in the middle of it all. God has thus fulfilled the purposes for which he called Israel in the first place. And you, Cornelius, and everyone everywhere who believes this message will receive a welcome at once without more ado into the family whose home has written in shining letters above the door the wonderful word, forgiveness. He commanded his disciples to preach to the people specifically these two things. First, it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, speaking of Jesus. Right now, he is judging the living. That's a big part of what Darwin and Freud and Marx and a host of others wanted to get rid of. And at the end of this life, there is a final judgment, for it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. The second thing we are to preach is through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Your sins will be taken away, as though they never happened. You'll be right with God. And if you're right with God and the sin's taken out of the way and the sin is the problem, now we begin a new life. Everything becomes new. My relationship with you, with my family, with strangers, with everybody. I'm a new person. Why? Because sin has been dealt with. Sin has been taken out of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus is not a pluralist. He is the one true God. And so in Acts 17, the Christians are described this way. These who have turned the world upside down. Remember, imagine the situation. First century. Small little group. Obscure minority. And here we are. 2,000 years later. Not just us. Countless others assembled throughout the world worshiping the one true God. How did that happen? You see, they actually turned the world right side up. And they did it with the message of the gospel. 
Paul stated it well as he marched into Rome where it was illegal to preach the gospel. And he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now I'm going to close this series in a moment by reading from Acts chapter 4 which describes the bold declaration of the gospel in the face of enormous opposition. And like the five loaves and the two fishes, Jesus, we'll see, continues to feed the multitude. So I am not discouraged in the least. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Acts 4, starting in verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could, not, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that, uh, for indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in his name. you think there's any intimidation going on in our culture to shut you up about Jesus? So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, 
since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. The whole world against Christ. For for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and that that signs and wonders may be done through your name to your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just the apostles. And what happened? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. I want to challenge you today. Who have you spoken to about the gospel in the last week or the last month or the last year? Yeah, it's a bad year in some ways. But it's a tremendous opportunity for the good news. Good news over against bad news makes good news look even better. Speak up. Talk to people. Engage them in a conversation. Pray for them. Some aren't going to like it. Some are going to make fun of you. So what? Some are going to believe. Somebody spoke to you. And somebody showed you the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful today for the gospel, for the good news, for the revealed truth that came by way of first your creation and then even us made in your image, but especially your word and your son, which revealed very in a very particular way what it is we need to know and what we need to believe. And we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to see what we were blind to in ourselves. That like Lazarus, you said to us, come forth. And if you can do that with us, we know you can do that, and you have done that over and over and over again. Help us, Lord, to be bold, to speak up the good news, the saving good news that Jesus is Lord over all. And we pray in his name. Amen. We talk about the need for the healing of the world, for there to be justice, for there to be peace. Ephesians 2 says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. (coughs) And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility 
that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Just in this room, even though we're missing half our congregation today, but just who's represented here today. That describes us. He took you and you and you and you and from all over the place and all kind of circumstances, and he's brought us together and made us one in Jesus Christ. It's true that the world is corrupt. It's falling apart. It's broken. And the gospel calls us to love and serve it, nevertheless, with our eye toward the day when Christ will return and make all things new. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, we should be, quote, uh, working on the basis of the finished work of Christ for substantial healing now in every area where there are divisions or brokenness because of the fall. But the biblical worldview sees evangelism and spiritual regeneration not as an end, but rather as a means to a larger end, that is, the reconciliation of all things. One more quote today from N.T. Wright. The great emphasis in the New Testament is that the gospel is not how to escape the world. The gospel is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world and that the death and resurrection trans that his death and resurrection transform the world and that transform that transformation can happen to you you in turn can be part of the transforming work so how do we christians respond to a world that has gone mad do we merely react to it or do we offer a better alternative one more quote nancy piercy says the best way to drive out a bad worldview is by offering a good one and Christians need to move beyond criticizing culture to creating culture. That is the task God originally created humans to do. And in the process of sanctification, we are meant to recover the task. In every calling, we are culture creators offering up our work as service to God. And so as we come to the Lord's table, this is the time for each of us individually and all of us corporately to renew our commitment to him. He has already given it all to us. Amen. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you now for this table, a table prepared in the presence of our enemies. Lord, we long to see our enemies become friends. Help us, Lord, to be nourished now by the body and blood of Christ that we might go forth and proclaim the message of peace through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.